lying down along O'Connor Street down to the Sarsfield Bar and up at the other side again. When any, anything went wrong, you know, you had auxiliaries here at the time. Anything went wrong, soldiers shot or policemen shot and they that dead. Came out that night and they blazed all around them, you know. When you think off the streets, I'd get killed. Well, the period in 1919 was a very stirring period in Europe and you had a number of factors intermingled in this. After the First World War, uh, you had a very revolutionary situation throughout the whole of uh, Europe and some of this spilled over into Ireland. Also, there was the fact of the 1913 lockout in Dublin, where the workers in Limerick had been very concerned in helping uh, with moral support and financial support their Dublin uh, fellow workers. And also James Connolly and his involvement in the 1916 Rising. Connolly uh, had written a good deal and some of his writings had become available in Limerick in this period. And many of the leaders of the Soviet and the, the Trades Council in Limerick at the time uh, had been students of Connolly. And in fact, uh, a paper was published for the first time in 1917 in Limerick, a workers' paper, the first workers' paper ever in the history of the Limerick working class. It was called The Bottom Dog. Jim Kemmy, editor of the Limerick Socialist, the present successor to The Bottom Dog. And many of Connolly's writings and principles and some of his ideology is to be found in the pages of that paper. So that was certainly a, a big influence uh, on the Soviet and on the leaders of the Soviet. But I think perhaps an even bigger in influence would have been the Russian Bolshevik Revolution in October of 1917. Certainly this fired the imagination of workers throughout the world and in, in Limerick this was a big influence. First ever uh, May Day demonstration in Limerick, when over 10,000 Limerick workers marched through the city to the Marcus Field, their first resolution to be read at that demonstration was a resolution uh, supporting and congratulating the Russian comrades, and that was the description in the resolution, uh, a resolution from Limerick workers. We, the workers of Limerick, extend fraternal greetings to our Russian comrades who have waged such a magnificent struggle for their social and political emancipation. That is the key to what happened in Nimerick in April 1919, a year after the ending of World War I, ostensibly fought in the defence of the small nations, only to see many of those small nations forever changed and their earths seeped with the blood of a million Europeans. It had been a barbaric war of trench warfare and mustard gas maiming and killing. Thousands of lives dispatched for the advance of a few feet of territory of blood and mud. And when it was all over, the impact of its atrocities had bred a disillusion in Europe. A disillusion with the established order and with the institutions of that order which had allowed war to happen. The disillusion with institutions was most fiercely expressed in Russia. A year before the ending of the war, the people of Russia had suffered great losses in the war. In the internal revolution of 1917, the old order of the Tsar went forever. 
From then on, Russia was to be in name at least a People's Republic. To be precise, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Ireland, of course, during that time, had had its own mini-war or revolution, which was, partially at least, socialist in motivation. And it was not unaffected by the larger war outside in Europe. At least 50,000 Irishmen had gone off to fight. Of those who returned, some were maimed and broken. Many were disillusioned with what they might have originally believed in. And in 1919, much of the old order in Ireland, like much of the old order in Europe, was in a state of profound change. An administration and government which had looked to Britain for authority was in the process of disintegration under the rising pressure of Irish nationalism. The military forces of the British Crown were under guerrilla harassment and attack in most of the southern part of Ireland. Let us, in fact, then see the country through the eyes of the Inspector General of the Royal Irish Constabulary in his report which was compiled from the various reports of the district inspectors under his command. This report, marked urgent and stamped secret, was for January 1919 and was addressed to the Chief Secretary's Office for Ireland. Considerable progress was made by the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. 232 branches were known to the police in the provinces who estimate the membership at about 39,000. It is noticed that the organisation has achieved the greatest measure of success in counties which are strongly Sinn Féin and that little progress was made in Ulster. An official view of the gathering twin forces of nationalism and the labour movement which were to dovetail in Limerick some months later. The report of the Inspector General of the Royal Irish Constabulary continued. The Irish Transport and General Workers' Union represents the socialist and labour wing of the Irish revolutionary movement. During the month of March, the condition of Ireland was very unsatisfactory owing to the continued prevalence of political unrest, which is widespread and shows no sign of abatement. Trade was good, but war prices apparently still ruled the markets, and there was unfortunately no fall in the exorbitant cost of living, which is the fruit of discontent. Labour organisation, which is of comparatively recent growth in this country, was actively carried on during the month. The Irish Transport and General Workers' Union has spread its branches everywhere, and all classes of people are enrolled in it. There were strikes in the counties of Antrim, Armagh, Cavan, Londonderry, Monaghan, Tyrone, Wicklow, Dublin, Kildare, Kilkenny, Longford, Louth, Mayo, Roscommon, Cork, Tipperary, Waterford and Kerry. The strikers nearly all belong to the labouring class and are out for 40 shillings or 50 shillings a week's wages. There are few large employers in country districts and it is of course obvious that in many cases such wages would be impossible, but in view of the enormous prices charged by farmers and shopkeepers during the war, the demand is perhaps less unreasonable than it looks. 
and the report for March 1919, the month before the strike, noted. In the prevailing discontent with the existing form of government, should the extremists decide to take independent action, they could rely to a considerable extent on the cooperation of labour organisation, and they would certainly find a large number of fanatical Irish volunteers through the country ready to do their bidding. Ireland is unquestionably in a highly inflammable condition, and in my opinion, at no time was there more urgent necessity for the presence of an overpowering military force. They were lying down along O'Connell Street down to the Sarsfield Bar, and up at the other side again. When any, anything went wrong, you know, you had auxiliaries here at the time, anything went wrong, soldiers shot or policemen shot, and they that dead. Came out that night, then they blazed all around them, you know. When you think off the streets, I'd get killed, one or the other. The recollection of Dan Clancy, then an 18-year-old worker at a mill in Limerick. There were classes, there were oxen, bucks and Lancashire fusiliers and they just come intermittently, you know. One group would be here for two years, another group would go away, they'd go away, another group, York and Lancs, all them, just all come and go, you know, to finish. They'd be relieved and replaced and so on like that, you know. Not everybody in Limerick resented the soldiers. You get a new crowd in this week and the people had flocked to them, particularly the, the girls, you know. The, needless to say, the soldiers were an attraction, an attraction for the girls, you know. And they used to all go up there to meet the soldiers at night coming out. And then the Republicans said, no, you don't meet any of these girls. They went up the military road and they chased the girls away, going to the home and so on like that. There's loads of people intermarried in this city to, to English soldiers. Loads of families here. Intermarried to them, you see. Just made it. They'd go down on a Sunday evening, and of course, the soldier was up there, they had a good appetite and all that. They'd go down on a Sunday evening, he'd have a feed of pig's head and then cabbage down at the girl's house, you know. And he was delighted with that. And eventually, there was a marriage. <laughs> you see, that's how they're here. All that kind of thing. All that kind of thing, however, changed in Limerick in April 1919 when an attempt was made to rescue a local volunteer who had been lodged in the workhouse. Robert Burden was held in the local workhouse, which was also a hospital. He had been taken there from jail following agitation for better conditions. Robert Burden was also a trade journalist and branch president of the Post Office Clerks Association and was also a prominent member of the Limerick Trades and Labour Council. Some of his friends made an attempt to rescue him and in the melee at the hospital he was shot as he attempted to escape. Batty Stack then a member of the Volunteers and of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, was the raider who shot the RIC guard in the attempt to rescue Bobby Byrne. And he remembers... Then Bobby didn't go to bed and ran down along the ward. I was quite satisfied he was going out. Came down the ward, the lads had struggled with some of them, then Constable Bryan pulled his revolver. So at time, I do something about it. So I fired at O'Brien took his gun. Then the lads went off. Did you kill O'Brien? O'Brien died. The funeral was an emotive affair, with crowds lining the pavement and army spot of planes flying overhead. The funeral was very much a display of defiant nationalism, which was current at the time. Because of the high feeling in the city about Robert Borden's death, because he was such a well-known trade journalist and volunteer, and because of the general state of unrest in the country, the military authorities feared a serious threat.
trouble, an outbreak of serious trouble. So, the military authority for the Limerick area, the man in charge of the operation, John Griffin, decided to make Limerick into a military area. This meant that all the workers entering the city had to show military passes, which gave the description, height, occupation, colour of hair, and so on. To make this system of permanent work, military and police posts were established on the approach to the city. Now, this meant that workers from, say, the Tormengate area, a traditional working class area of Limerick, whose work took them across the Shannon into the city, had to show the military permits four times a day as they crossed to and from their work over the bridge uh, over the Shannon River into the city. It also, of course, meant that workers leaving the city to go to work at Cleves Condensed Milk Factory, the biggest factory in the area at this time, had to go through the same procedure. Some of the workers are treated to having to show the military permits to get to work. They refused to go to work this way, and that is really how the strike began. Permits? Please? Please have your permits ready? Permits! Permits! I'm not sure no permits to go Why to work. Why should we have permits? Tell me that, huh? Why should we have permits to get to work? Come on now, gentlemen. Orders is orders. And General Griffin says all workers have to show permits to cross into the city to work. Orders is orders. I'm only obeying orders, like. Book of the orders! We're taking no orders from the military. Yeah, book of the orders! Book of the military! Why should the working people have permits? We won't cross them. A strike! No work with permits! Strike! Right. Strike! Change the military! Strike! Strike! And strike it was, indeed more than a strike, for the strikers formed a committee and the committee became a commissariat and the commissariat established a Soviet. And for 10 days in April 1919 in Limerick City there existed a Soviet along the lines of the Russian Revolution of 18 months previously. Except this Soviet was, by European standards, in an obscure Irish city. It was the first Soviet to be established in the British Isles. That was Monday, 14th of April. The following day, the Times newspaper of London reported, Limerick has been proclaimed a military area and a general strike has been proclaimed as a protest. The strike which began this morning is complete and, if prolonged, the consequences must be serious. All the shops are closed, including the licensed houses. The bakers and butchers' assistants have joined the other strikers, and this evening there is a shortage of bread. The military and constabulary have been confined to barracks, but thousands of people thronged the city during the day discussing the extraordinary situation. There was a large procession of male and female workers throughout the city, but there were no disturbances. Concluded the Times, with relief almost, for, in truth, most of the imperial world of the Times seemed about to disintegrate. The paper's first editorial of the same date was headed Outbreak in India and began The passive resistance movement in India continues to lose its passive character and last Friday there were very grave disturbances at Amritsar in the Punjab. Amritsar, of course, was to prove a watershed on the road to Indian independence but the Times wasn't to know that then and concluded its editorial It must be obvious that if India lapses into internal strife the great reforms which the British government have in mind may be imperiled. Certain things did, however, remain assured in the world of the Times. Under the report of the Limerick strike, another news item noted that 
Applications for admission to the royal enclosure at Ascot must be sent to Viscount Churchill St. James's Palace between May the 1st and May the 31st. Limerick, however, was a long way in lifestyle from Ascot on April the 14th, 1919. The government had responded with this notice to be displayed by the police. The public of Limerick are informed that although Limerick has been proclaimed a military area, this in no way prevents the inhabitants from getting their supplies in ordinary course. If, owing to the actions of ill-disposed persons, the inhabitants suffer through the lack of necessities of life, the government will be in no way responsible. John Cronin, leader of the strike committee, promptly responded, Fellow citizens, the military authorities are endeavouring to spread the falsehood that it is we, rather than they, who are trying to starve you. We hereby disclaim any such intentions as we have already made every arrangement whereby foodstuffs will be distributed to our fellow citizens. Our fight is not against our own people, but against the inhuman imposition of martial law. As peaceful workers, we only desire the right that we be left alone to exercise the right of free men in our own country. Though that declaration was issued sometime on Wednesday the 16th of April, which was the third day of the strike, it was early days yet for the government to be concerned. True that the strike committee had begun to organise food supplies, there was yet no severe shortage, and the strike was by no means totally effective. Some hotels and other businesses continued to function. So, in spite of the strikers' assertion that our fight is not against our own people, there was a degree of pressure on those still working, what is nowadays called intimidation. Dan Clancy. And Ruski Rain said to us, I went in the deputation, there's a little time of the girls in the hotel. They went up and into bed, that was the only thing they could do. Because they couldn't stay in the job to work because we had them outside, they would have them outside the door, you know. We were determined on that. But <laughs> the next thing happened anyway, they went up and into bed. And we got the word that they were both in bed from one of the girls in the place, you know. And up we went and pulled them out, blouses and skirts and <laughs> body, this is the hard thing. <laughs> Sheets thrown to it, all that, pulled them out of bed, pulled them out. Now, now, we're going to get our dinner. They were all fed in the hotel, you see. We're going to get our dinner, you see. I never mind your dinner, we'll fix all that. No one was even allowed. That, that the people who were in the hotel had to cook their own dinner, so what is it? By Thursday, the 17th of April, the fourth day of the strike, the word Soviet had come to be used. Some of the marchers carried red flags and the strike committee all sported red badges on their lapels. The workers sang the red flag, a song incidentally composed by an Irish immigrant to Britain and subsequently to be adopted as the signature tune, so to speak, of the British Labour Party. But in Nimrick then, they even had a parody of the red flag. A clarion voice rings loud over our voice workers' voice is Labour's call and we who fought from sire to son Stand battling. Our people's flag is deepest red. It shrouded off our martyr dead. And ere their limbs grew stiff and cold, their hearts' blood dyed its every fold. Then raise the Though cowards flinch 
question then asks itself, why was there such an element of communism and of the symbols of communism in Limerick in April 1919? The weekly Labour newspaper, The Voice of Labour, edited by Cahill O'Shannon, carried an analysis of the political situation in the country and had this to say. In our view, it is the most important and urgent question facing Ireland today. Its importance is derived from the general European situation and the application of the lessons of that situation to the case of Ireland. We give it as our deliberate and carefully thought our opinion of the best and most effective answers Ireland can give to Macpherson and the government he represents is the establishment here and now of Soviets in Ireland. Let us take him at his word that no outside authority can intervene in the solution of the Irish question. The Tsar and the whole of Tsardom said the same of Russia. Russia took them at their word and the Russian proletariat through the Soviets swept Tsar and Tsardom and the whole Russian system into nothingness. When they had done that, the Russian Soviets liberated Poland, Finland, Estonia, Ukraine, Georgia, and Lithuania. In all these countries, there was nothing except the intervention of a great idea, namely the dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictatorship of the laboring masses. Today, the Soviet idea is sweeping westward across Europe. It is making a scrap of paper of the peace treaty. The Soviet has shown itself the only instrument of liberation in Europe. The proletariat has proven itself the only honest and only human governing force in the world. Again we say, Ireland's best and most effective answer is the immediate establishment of the Soviets, the instruments which will bring about the dictatorship of the Irish proletariat. We have been cut off long enough from the mainstream of European life and thought. All resounding and stirring stuff that, particularly in an age of emotive sloganising, and undoubtedly influential upon the strike committee in Nimerick, particularly upon the three leaders of the strike, convinced trade unionists. It was, however, a selective view, as is any propaganda for any cause. Though the Russian Soviets had come into being out of alienation at the excesses of the war and at the excesses of the feudal class system, it had itself in turn bred excesses of the kind it was designed to prevent. Were the leaders of the Limerick Soviet aware of this? This is a matter of, of perspective. The expression you use, nasty things, certainly people got killed. But looking at this from the historical background, the Russian people, working people especially, had been an oppressed people and, and had succeeded in overthrowing the, the, the Tsar this time and instituting the first workers' state. I think the workers in uh, Limerick, uh, who had been oppressed perhaps in similar ways, certainly under the capitalist system, would have been oppressed and also you had an element perhaps of the, the British army and the British occupation, well, this would be intermingled with perhaps their sense of being oppressed as a class here. But 
No, they would not have been conscious uh, of the, the perhaps nasty things you described them as uh, as being part of the Russian Revolution. They would have seen the matter in more or less black and white terms that the, uh, the bosses and employers had been overthrown and the workers had taken over. Would they have cut off from their minds, so to speak, uh, the nasty things which happened? Um, I think they would have been, have been able to divorce those things or perhaps put them into the perspective, as I said. Uh, it's a matter of um, productivity. The, the, the most important factor would, would have been that a, a more just and humane society had been instituted there, whereby the workers would be given better treatment and the quality of life would improve for working people. That's how the limited workers would have seen that, I think. What about the conflict between the very orthodox Catholicism of the time and this uh, alien philosophy, if you like? Yeah, well, this is a very interesting uh, factor. And it hasn't been probed uh, very deeply uh, in the Limerick Soviet. And in fact, this has uh, been a feature of Irish socialism down through the years, and it needs to be examined and analysed. It hasn't been done very adequately up to now. And the Limerick Soviet provides a very unique and interesting example of the intermingling of Catholicism with the, the socialism. Um, uh, part of the Limerick Soviet ideology and part of the whole strike uh, was nationalistic and Catholic nationalistic, I think would be the best term to describe that, uh, insofar as all the workers were, were strong Catholics and fervent Catholics. And in fact, there's a description in a book by Ruth Russell. She was an American journalist here working in, uh, in Ireland in that period, and she subsequently wrote it. All the limerick shops I passed were blinded or shuttered. In the grey light, black lines of people moved desolately up and down, not allowed to congregate and apparently not wanting to wait in homes they were weary of. A few candles flickered in windows. At the door of a river street house, I mounted gritty stone steps. A red-badged man opened the door part way. As soon as I told him I was an American journalist, the suspicious look on his face vanished. With much cordiality, he invited me to come upstairs. While he knocked on a door, he bade me wait. On the invitation to come in, I entered a badly lit room where working men sat at a long, black, scratch table. I was invited to sit down. As I asked my questions, every head turned toward me. Yes, this is a Soviet, said John Cronin, the carpenter who was the father of the baby Soviet. Why did we form it? Why do we pit people's rule against military rule? Our particular grievance is this. When the town was unjustly proclaimed a military area, the cordon was thrown out to leave a factory part of the town beyond the bridges. We had to ask the soldiers for permits to earn our daily bread. You have seen how we have thrown the crank into production. But some activities are permitted to continue. Bakers are working under our orders. The kept press is killed, but we have substituted our own paper. He held up a small sheet which said in large letters, The Workers' Bulletin, issued by the Limerick Proletariat. We have, by the way, Cronin said, felt the sympathy of the Union men in the army sent to guard us. A whole Scots regiment had to be sent home because it was letting workers go back and forth without passes. St. Munchen's chapel bell struck the Angelus. The red-badged guards rose and blessed themselves. A Soviet? A Soviet? What in the name of God is that? I don't know. I think it's a sin. It's one of them dirty Russian things anyway. 
One of the photographs of the time of the strike committee shows a group of 32 men, rather severe looking, most with the moustaches of the period, posing for the photographer in their best three-piece Sunday suits. John Cronin, the strike leader, sits at the centre. His son remembers. My father was most unassuming man. He was a, a great craftsman. Uh, he won the Worshipful Company's Carpenters gold medal and certificate for excellence in woodwork. The only one actually in, in, in Ireland at the moment. And he, the standard of the work didn't come up in Scotland or Wales to warrant the giving of this particular uh, certificate. And uh, he, anything he took on hands, he finished and he completed it. But he was, um, he was a very key trade unionist and so was his father before him. Because uh, there was a firm of uh, jewellers here in Limerick at one time. There were the Waltzes. And my grandfather was president of the Trades Council at the time. And maybe it is appropriate now at the moment to mention the fact that uh, Mr Wallace wrote to my grandfather asking for his support in the common mayoral election. So the, 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 the trades bodies at that time, they had great uh, power, if I may say. And uh, it surely uh, says something about the trades union movement at that particular time. Well, most of them, the leaders of the Soviet, were tradesmen, local tradesmen. For instance, John Cronin, the president of the Trades Council, and the chairman of the strike committee, he was a carpenter by trade. And Jim Casey the treasurer of the Trades Council and the Strike Committee. He was uh, also a tradesman. He was a, um, a printer by trade. And uh, there was also an engineering worker uh, involved, Carr. In fact, one of the, uh, I suppose, legacies of little aspects of history that has been passed down in the trade union movement in Limerick is to refer to the three leaders as the three C's, Casey, Carr and Cronin, three C's. And these were the leaders of the strike. I would describe them myself as being instinctive socialists rather than as being Marxist socialists. Certainly, the socialism was more of a pragmatic, spontaneous variety as workers rather than a deeply thought out ideological commitment to Marxism. Everybody was supposed to come out and start work. It was a laugh at first, you know, it was a bit of a laugh at first. We'd all out to our head. Well, lots of fellas wanted all of that kind of business, you know. But when the strike came, Everybody was out. Well, then anybody that stayed in were enemies. See what I mean now? Automatically became enemies. The loyalists here in town, they had to come to us for permits to feed their horses and to here and there. I, actually, uh, uh, Ross Rose, uh, we had a letter from no, to know if we'd allow a Jarvey to go and collect him at the railway station to take him home. That's a fact. And that was only one of thousands of applications we got from people. Who, so we were in control, in complete control. On Tuesday 22nd of April, the ninth day of the strike, the London Times, in an editorial on what was happening in Limerick, said, The intention is to expand the strike at Limerick until it spreads throughout the country, though we think the plan will prove a failure and that common sense will soon prevail. 
The strike at Limerick is nominally the outcome of the proclamation of the city as a special military area under the Defence of the Realm regulations. This step was taken by the Irish government in consequence of the tragedy in Limerick Workhouse when in an attempt to rescue a Sinn Féin prisoner, both the prisoner himself and one of his guards were killed. The declaration of the government meant, among other things, that a military permit is required to enter or leave the city. It happens that the principal factory in the neighbourhood is situated across the River Shannon and outside the military cordon. Brigadier General Griffin, who is in local command, offered a general permit for workpeople employed at the factory. But in the meantime, the local trade unions had declared a general strike and had formed a strike committee. The internal control of the city has passed into the hands of the committee, who are adopting the most approved Soviet methods. I was running here and running there uh, on, on, on errands of, uh, and uh, connecting up with people who was more or less on, uh, on duty around uh, the city and see that everybody was, they were all at their posts uh, watching for any emergency that might spring up. We were on site that time that, that the sky was the limit. You know, there was no regulation of anything except that. You just went and done what you had to do. You see, now, there was a market down here, the little market. There, yes. There in the North of Robert Street. And they went in there once out of the morning. <laughs> they made the farmers give up the stuff for half nothing, as I said. You know, get it out, no more about it. Go, out to go. And it was police. Police were standing there powerless. <laughs> but the police didn't do anything, you know. Didn't try to do anything. Give the stuff away. Well, the people are delighted with that. I'll flock to the public. <laughs> they regulate the opening of the shops and even direct the sales. They are also endeavouring to decide prices, though not with very much success. As money is running short among the strikers, they are about to issue an equivalent of promissory notes of a value of from one to ten shillings, guaranteed by the workers of Limerick and signed by the Limerick Trade and Labour Council said the Times, and indeed the printing of their own money, was one of the features of the strike. Incidentally, some of the money was also counterfeited by other workers. There were also some other developments. Tom Johnson, General Secretary of the Labour Party, arrived in Limerick as Special Representative of the Irish Trade Union Congress. I have the authority to announce that the full strength of the Labour movement in Ireland, backed by the general public, will be exerted on behalf of the men and women of Limerick. This is, in the first instance, Labour's fight against the attempt by the military authorities to choose who shall or who shall not proceed to or from his or her daily work. But it is Limerick's reply to President Wilson's question, shall the military source of any nation or group of nations be suffered to determine the fortunes of people over whom they have no right to rule, except the right of force. Limerick's reply is, no, and all Ireland is at her back. As events proved, however, all Ireland was not at the back of the Limerick strikers. Many unions refused to cooperate. The GAA, on the other hand, gave a certain amount of money. But throughout the country, there was dissension and differing points of view among Labour leaders for support of the strike. The London Times said, Various Labour leaders were converging upon Limerick yesterday and it is understood that a decision will be reached today on the question of a general strike throughout Ireland. 
The prevalent opinion in Ireland appears to be any call of the kind will not meet with a widespread response. Ireland has never been so prosperous as she is today, and the bulk of the community object very strongly to the wanton creation of industrial strike. Even in Limerick it is recognised that the local strike must quickly collapse, as is the case with all general strikes, unless very large monetary help is sent at once. The strikers are understood to be looking to England for help, but we fancy that English working men have other use for their money, now none too plentiful, and will hardly be willing to pour it into a country which has grown affluent during the war. And if the workmen of a single Irish city say they cannot maintain their general strike without funds from England, what prospect is there of the success of a wider movement of the kind? In spite of the lack of support from some other unions and the dissension within the Labour Party in Dublin on their attitude to the strike in Limerick, in Limerick itself the euphoria continued. The whole city was surrounded by tanks and armoured cars. I remember the name on one armoured car was Fatty Adams and the other was Scotch and Soda. Now, uh, we organised a fictitious football match for Cahar Davin. So we brought about 40% of the citizens out to Cahar Davin. And uh, they tripled the, 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 the guard on all the approaches, all the entrance to Limerick City at the time. But um, what we done was we went down to Ballycar Station and we contacted the, the railway man that was there, the signal man, and we asked him if, he was, if there was any wagons coming on the road, on the railroad. And he said that he had a rake of about 80 wagons coming from Sligo. And uh, they were empty. And he was asked to know was the engine driver carrying a long or a short staff. And he said he was take, carrying a long staff to uh, Limerick, the terminus. But uh, we asked him to know was there any chance he got a short staff to the long pavement. So he said, I don't know what all this is about, he said. So we explained, oh, he said, I'm with you 100%. And so was the engine driver and the fireman. So they pulled up the empty wagons at the long pavement. And we put all our people aboard. And we sailed over the Shannon Bridge and into Limerick Terminus, the greatest victory that was ever won without firing a shot. I have broken my hands on your granite. I have broken my strength on your steel. I have sweated through years for your pleasure. I have worked like a slave for your wheel. Yet I suffer all in my patience, for somehow I dimly have known that someday the worker will in a world that was meant for his own in a world that was meant for his own During a debate in the House of Commons in London on war pensions for ex-soldiers there were interruptions from the public gallery where, as the Times noted, it has lately been the habit to mix the sexes. One woman was heard to shout And in Limerick, 
All the shops are closed, including the licensed houses. The bakers and butchers' assistants have joined the other strikers, and this evening there is a shortage of bread. Ah, Jesus, bread! Who cares about bread? Bread! Shed the bread! We'll give them soda cakes! <laughs> Limerick was in an edgy state. It had just been relieved of a siege, and there was still a crack or two of sniping at night. There was a strike on at the bacon factories, and there was an attempt to start a Soviet. I went to see the committee and politely took my hat off and made a small French bow when I went into their room. The leader told me to put my hat on. They had finished, he said, with bourgeois manners. We had a wrangle about this because, although I am shy, I am touchy and argued back. We had a rapid duel of sarcasms. He was one of those black Irishmen one occasionally comes across. There was another, a waiter at the hotel in Limerick, who threw a plate of bacon and eggs at a customer. He was a big fellow who looked murderous every time he came into the dining room with a plate. The strikers are understood to be looking to England for help, but we fancy that English working men have other use for their money. While other people have stated that it was the attitude of the British trade unions in not supporting the strike, notably uh, Jimmy Thomas and um, the Railwomen's Union, uh, National Union of Railwomen, uh, that was the full, full title of the union at the time, that they were very... Um, unhappy with that situation and while some English unions uh, British British unions did support, support the strike financially uh, that union especially National Union of Railwomen and Thomas especially who was later to, to play a very bad part in the general strike in Britain in the 20s but uh, Thomas was not very enamoured with the Limerick Soviet and played a big part in trying to damp it down not sending on money in support of it I would think that the most decisive factor wasn't the, the attitude of, of the British unions. It was, in fact, the attitude of the Bishop of Limerick, Catholic Bishop of Limerick, Dr. Hallinan was his name. Uh, he was certainly instrumental in bringing about the finish of the strike. He met with the Mayor of Limerick, Mr. O'Mara at the time, Alphonsus O'Mara. He met the leaders of the strike committee and the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, or the Irish TOC, as it was known as then, um, and had a discussion with him. And, and also, he met the, the, the uh, Brigadier um, General Command of the British Forces here, um, General Griffin. And um, after these series of meetings, the, the Bishop and the Mayor wrote a let letter to the strike committee asking them to finish the strike. And it was on, on that, on, on their behest, the strike finished. So that was a very important factor. Being a garrison town, you had a lot of people against you. Quite a big number. Girls married to British soldiers and so on. Yes, but you had separation people as well, where sons and husbands had been at the war. While the, the Chamber of Commerce made a, a protest after the strike had ended, um, concerning the fact that they weren't consulted by the Trades Council in calling the strike, and also the, the, the Chamber of Commerce expressed, expressed its displeasure and opposition to the whole strike, um, I think this was a natural reaction from, from the Chamber of Commerce because they, they were losing a considerable amount of business during the course of the strike. Had the workers consulted with the chamber before declaring a general strike, joint action could have been taken which might have been effective and saved the city from the disastrous strike which lasted 12 days. The directors of this chamber feel it their duty to enter an emphatic protest against the arbitrary action of the workers in calling a general strike without giving due notice to the employers. 
Had the position been reversed and the employers, without notice, closed down their premises, the workmen would have bitterly resented the action. You had some individual employers in Limerick who honoured the paper currency produced and printed by the strike committee and that's um, did distribute uh, goods and, and so on and did allow the goods to, to be taken over by the, the workers uh, and these um, money, currency notes were fully honoured afterwards by the strike committee and by the trades council and the merchants were paid back in full but by and large I can say that, um, that the employers were opposed to the strike and to the Soviet and certainly uh, from a, a class point of view or a political point of view uh, you would ex expect that position from them But was it ever really on that a Soviet could have succeeded in Limerick or in Ireland of the time given the structure of the society of the time? It would be impossible to build a Soviet in isolation from the rest of the country and the attempts by the, the strike committee here to enlist support of the railwaymen and to cause a shutdown of transport and also to bring about a general strike in the country. Well, that, that was not supported by the Irish TSC, and it, it was for that reason the st strike crumbled. It couldn't have succeeded in isolation uh, and uh, without the support of workers, perhaps throughout the, the country and even throughout Britain as well. Moving on a bit from the actual Soviet itself to subsequent times, is there <coughs> any traceable effect that it has had on the structure of the city or on the attitude of workers in the city? Um, traceable effect, uh, uh, perhaps, is uh, putting the thing a bit strongly. Um, we have to know what traces remain and what traces vanish. Certainly, within the trade union movement as, as such, we're very conscious of the fact that, uh, that we had a strike here in 1919 and, and the thinking of, of our leaders in the trade union movement and, and their objectives and so on. And in that sense, Within the trade union movement as such, that there is a very strong awareness and consciousness uh, of the period and of the men involved. But as a, as a mass of workers and a mass of the people generally in Limerick, most of them would not have been aware of this, would not be aware of it now, or its implications, no. Implications? Are there any other implications for contemporary Ireland in that curious mixture of nationalism and socialism which happened in Limerick then? Is it, for instance, just meaningless speculation to wonder on the influence if the socialist strain had won out over the nationalistic strain? I don't think it would make much difference, to, because I think that the volunteers at the time and Sinn Féin had much control of it. Uh, the labour movement, as I say at the time, they weren't politically minded. The working class was heavily influenced by religion and nationalism, but had the socialist element won out in the Soviet, I think a more aware working class would have developed there, and a second element would be that the Protestant working class in the north would not have felt threatened by uh, the southern, southern nationalists. Be that as it may, back to Limerick, 25th of April 1919, the statement of surrender from the strike committee. Whereas the workers of Limerick have been on strike since Monday, April the 14th, as a protest against the military ban on our city, and whereas in the meantime the question has become a national issue, we hereby call on all workers who can resume work without military permits to do so tomorrow, Friday morning.